Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Glenn Moore of World Soccer, and Richard Amofa of The Athletic. Pep Guardiola pitting his wits against Marcello Bielsa is always intriguing, but for once, it will be a relatively stress-free treat. Realistically, the Premier League title is in the bag, no matter what occurs at the Etihad on Saturday lunchtime. Manchester City have still work to do in the Champions League, but they're favourites for the league and FA Cups. Talk of the quadruple is becoming louder and more insistent. Pep has spoken about the pressure of expectation. Sir Richard, can they deal with it? You'd like to think so. I think, you know, everyone's talking about the quadruple and... You know, questions whether it's premature to talk about it. And, you know, I, I don't think so. I mean, you look at their league position, they only, need, they only need 11 points now. The next four fixtures, Leeds, Villa, Palace, Chelsea, all winnable games. So they can wrap that up soon. League Cup, probably expect them to beat Spurs in the final. FA Cup, you know, if they get past Chelsea, then expect them to beat Leicester or Southampton. So that's, that's a you know, domestic treble sorted. And you, then you look at the Champions League and... You know, in these kind of one-off games, of course, City have the quality to beat anyone. You look at the kind of history, and and they've fallen short at times. But I just think they're in that rhythm now. You know, they've in fantastic form. Obviously, only losing to United in the past couple of months, so they've got that real momentum behind them. And I think that's really important at this stage of the season. You know, grinding out results. They weren't great against Dortmund, but they got the job done. And I think at this stage of the season, is is really important. Yeah, City have come up with their financial results this week. Glenn, a record wage bill of £351 million. For that sort of outlay, shouldn't City be expected to dominate? Well, you would have thought so. But Chelsea didn't always when they were the biggest payers. Manchester United have actually most seasons been the biggest payers since Fergie left and they haven't won the championship since. In fact, if you go back, I mean, figures for wages aren't obviously notoriously difficult to get actual figures. But for most of the things I've been looking at, if you go back for the last five seasons, the biggest, the team with the biggest wage bill hasn't won the league. Obviously, I mean, once Liverpool were, I think, were very high, bonus payments distorted for what Liverpool did with the Champions League and so on. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you pay the most, you win the league. However, you could argue if you don't win the league, you have underperformed. Because there is nothing indicates more closely where you're going to finish in the league, then your wage bill, and that applies at the top and at the at the bottom, is, is a much clearer indicator of your finishing position than transfers, for example. Yeah, I suppose when you look at it, the commercial income, Richard, £246 million, that's that's hugely increased over the recent years, and it dwarfs that of, say, Liverpool, I think it was £188 million. Are we getting increasing number of looks into a... Uh, almost a hyper elitist future in which they've got a small cadre of clubs who are pretty much untouchable. I think that's that's, that's definitely a, a fair assertion. I think if you look across Europe, the teams, if you look across the leagues, one or two teams have pretty much dominated the outset there. And if you look at it on paper in England, you know, City are going on to win their fifth title in, in, in the last decade. So it, it goes to show that, you know, you have the resources there. And you know, team teams are beginning to dominate, which 
I guess from a neutral's perspective, you're, it's probably not great because it's okay. You've got the same teams winning all all the time. You've got the same teams there and thereabouts at, at the same stages of the season. But credit to City, you know they they've built that infrastructure there. They, they could they could have thrown money at it, and we've seen instances where it hasn't worked with some other teams. So the fact that they've got the infrastructure there, they've got the manager that they want, they've got the players, they've got the system, and and you know obviously they're 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 kind of clubs uh, are situated around the world. So. All of that together, you look at the infrastructure of the club, I think they've got a very solid basis and um, it's definitely something I can see continuing moving forward. The game's been going that way, though, for quite some time. I mean, away receipts being um, cut rather than sharing the funds, paying directors, even abolishing the minimum minimum wage, which obviously was a good thing, but that made it you know easier for the bigger clubs to pay out. But there's still no guarantees. I mean, PSG aren't running away with the league in France this year. If you look in England, I mean, the small elite is actually now quite a big elite and you've got Clubs like Liverpool struggling to get into the Champions League and Arsenal, you know, they didn't look like they're going to finish the top four, maybe not even the top six. So you could still have a certain amount of distortion, but clearly we are miles away from where we were in the 70s that you and I grew up with, Mike, when lots of different teams could win the league. That is, of course, until Liverpool start winning it pretty much every year. Yeah, and with that, I suppose another aspect of modern football, Rich, Kevin De Bruyne, real statement of intent, He's been extended his contract until 2025. That's not surprising. I think probably what was more revealing was the way that contract came about. He employed data analysts to to prove how important he was to the team. He negotiated the contract himself with two lawyers operating remotely from Belgium. No agents. Is that a new form of player power? And also, does it tell other players hey, we could be missing a trick here. I think so, because if, if you look at it from, from the other perspective, clubs have all this data available to them and that's how they live and die by their decisions. They have data analysts on board to assess players' performance for, from all aspects, from their attacking, defending, how far they run and what they contribute to the side. So it seems, it seems like when you look at it, no-brainer really that he's actually adopted that model because you can't argue with, with facts. You can't argue with data. It's easy to go in and say, oh, okay, this is what I do and speak about hypotheticals and, and, and emotions per se. But, you know, he can turn around and say, look, I've got this amount of goals, this amount of assists, expected goals, ex- expected assists. Look at my heat map. Look at what I'm contributing to the team with the high press and things like that. And because you can really kind of, especially these days, really dig into that into the data and do deep dives into it, you can really produce metrics that that are irrefutable. I mean, we all know from the eye test that Kevin De Bruyne is 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 indispensable. We know what he brings to the team, but it's about moving forward and using those kind of statistical models, I should say, to to see where the team's going. I think, as you say, he's worked both ways. While he's used the data to prove himself, he's also sought out assurances that Man City are moving in the right direction, and the data has helped to prove that. So. As you say, you can't argue with, with the facts. You can't argue with, with, with the numbers. And I can see more players doing that moving forward. The interesting part, of course, is the other part, as you mentioned, Mike, is you know the agents. I'm, I'm not a great fan of agents, but I think there is a place for them, particularly when it comes to young players who may not have any experience in negotiation and also players who maybe lost their way a bit and need to find a club. But, I mean, as the, the David Squires card too this week pointed out, you know, <laughs> the big clubs know who Harland is. Yeah, they do not need Viola knocking the door saying, I've got this bloke who's really good, scoring lots of goals. They know that. And I mean, it goes back to when um, Michael Kennedy operated, the, the, the Irish lawyer. He operated for quite a lot of players, Roy Keane and uh, David O'Leary and Frank Stapleton. And he was a lawyer. And like the guys who passed last year, but like the guys who were working for De Bruyne, the Belgian lawyers, he was charging by the hour a lawyer's rate rather than your, your 10%, your 5%. And I must admit, I am surprised that more players don't just engage professionals to work on that basis rather than you know agents who uh, and then they have to you know it's like uh, even when you renegotiate a contract with the same club they're taking a vast sum of money out of the club and I mean City paid an incredible amount of money in uh, agents fees last year uh, yeah, huge sums of money went out of the game not just City lots of clubs yeah, on agents fees you're thinking where that money could be used elsewhere it's just, it just seems a bit of a waste and you're right players may be looking at that and think well if Kevin De Bruyne can do without an agent why do I need one for this sort of deal yeah, well, you know, with the greatest respect to whoever does this job, you don't need to be a genius to actually be in charge of Phil Foden either, do you? When you look at that, how how long do you think it will be before he's actually regarded as integral to City as as De Bruyne? 
I, I, I would say we need to have start having that conversation now because we he's popped up with key goals this season. He's taking responsibility on the pitch in terms of creating things and, and even leading the press from the front. And I think the real game, which was a kind of turning point for me personally, was Liverpool away. But obviously Man City won convincingly, but, you know, he played false nine that day. He... Led the press, you know, he, he was winning headers against Fabinho and then, you know, running running onto them. And and obviously, you know, the, his creative thing obviously goes without saying and he scored a fantastic goal as well. So I, I think we're ready to have that conversation now to say, you know, he is a key player for them. He's popped up at big times this season, scored key goals and he is a key player for them. We saw that again midweek, scored the winner at a time where, OK, maybe he probably should have scored a hat-trick with the amount of chances he had. But he's still deciding games and, and you know, providing key moments at decisive times. So, yeah, I, I think he's ready to say, I'm a key player now. I'm ready to step up and, and be one of the main men at the club. Mm. Harking back to that game, Glenn, Jude Bellingham, you know, even at 17, he came across as an absolute must-pick for England in the Euros, didn't he? He did, yeah. So the maturity in his game is really quite something, isn't it? Because in the position he's playing, he's not like sometimes you get very young players emerging more peripheral positions on the wing or something like that. But, uh, yeah, he's in a, a key central position, doing quite a lot of what you saw, the dirty side of the game, which generally younger players don't necessarily see. I mean, it was quite interesting. There was obviously a lot of talking through the game from guys like Matt Hamels and, and players around him, but he was you know, really producing there. I mean, the big question is, I mean, this is quite an unusual position for an England manager to have, but, you know, if you take him, who do you leave out? I mean, normally there's a you know, there's sort of there's 17, 18 must picks, and then you're sort of scrabbling around to find out who you can fill the squad with. At this time, Gareth Saka is actually in the enviable and surprising position of whoever he leaves out. People will be saying, "Well, why have you left him out?" But the question is, well, who are you going to drop instead? Mm. Are we are we beginning? You know, I, I, I'm reluctant to use the word dynasty, but there is a consistent production line of talent now, isn't there, Rich? You know, you think about it, if we think the even of the next wave, the one behind this one, you've got Liam Delap at, at Manchester City, Harvey Elliott at Liverpool, Louis Barry at, at Villa. The talent is 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 quite extraordinary. What do you put that down to? I think I think a lot of it I I know a lot of talk has been a lot of credit rightly so has been given to Dan Ashworth and uh, you know the kind of England DNA kind of blueprint that he's put on things. But I think it's just, you know, we we've seen other countries allow their talent to kind of flourish and by that I mean you know allowing players to express themselves on the ball being creative and stuff I guess the 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 old adage previously I guess was that okay there's lots of pace lots of power and emphasis on the tactical side of the game but not really producing high quality technical players but we're beginning to see that now throughout the throughout the youth teams throughout the England youth sides and, and things like that and it's really it's a really exciting time because we're seeing those talents flourish and also being given an opportunity at, at, at clubs and, and at you know decent decent standards. So I think the issue, I guess, previously was that players couldn't really see a pathway. It's a big reliance on experienced players, get the job done. But I think now they're earning that trust of their managers, of their coaches. And, and you know, these guys are fearless and they're taking their chances. And I think with that, we're beginning to see more and more young players flourish in the game and it's really exciting, as you say, for England to have this kind of consistent conveyor belt of talent, which maybe we didn't see before. Mm. City, as I mentioned right at the start, they're at home to Leeds on Saturday, a BT Sport game. Can we just quickly look at the coaching matchup, you know, Glenn, because it is intriguing. Can you compare and contrast Guardiola and Bielsa? You could argue, I suppose, uh, I mean, Bielsa's obviously been one of those great influential managers, or coaches be a better word, and huge amounts of other uh, coaches have, have learned from it. But he's almost been like one of those um, early musical leads who didn't have that many hits themselves, but everybody ended up playing a bit like them and succeeded from it. I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head. But, you know, it, you know I mean, I mean, Bielsa's, if you look at the what he's actually won, he's not won a massive amount of trophies. Compared to some of the people who followed his ideas, what he has done is create a sort of um, a, 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 he's been a massively influential figure in in coaching, and other people have taken the way he plays and maybe added a bit more pragmatism, and therefore been more successful because they they've been prepared to compromise in a way that perhaps he isn't prepared to compromise or hasn't been so much as yeah you know, some of the others have. But yeah, you know, there's no you can't sort of 
gains a his um influence on other people and yeah when you look at what he's been done at Leeds I mean he's got, he got Leeds into the Premier League when an awful lot of managers over was it 17 years tried and failed so I mean it's not as if he's not without success he has been successful at times and he does seem at least to have found the right club for himself yeah that club you know is is an emotionally driven football club Rich how big is it or how big can it be because I'm looking at someone like Calvin Phillips as an example you know again we go back to agents or if you're advising him do you actually say well yeah you could fulfill yourself at Leeds and grow with the club or if you really want to establish yourself in the England squad do you actually need to move to a bigger club a Liverpool or a Man United I don't I don't see the rush for him to to go anywhere so soon I mean he's still young and he's had a fantastic first season in the Premier League I think it's not really a surprise to anyone. We all saw his quality, defensive discipline, his, his good passing range and things like that. And um, I, I personally, I'd like to see him stay under Bielsa, maybe just for another year at least, kind of learn you know, more additional aspects to, you know, to his game, keep playing consistently at the highest level. Because you know, if he was to move on, there's no guarantee that he'll be playing week in, week out. So the fact he's, he's playing in, in, a, you know, in a good quality side at the top level every week is allowing him to, again, stake a claim to be one of England's main defensive midfielders. So I don't think there's any rush for him to go. And of course, you know, he's a Leeds boy through and through, isn't he? It's going to take a massive, massive deal to, to prize him away from there, especially if you look at the trajectory that Leeds are on. Why, why would you want to leave at the moment? So, yeah, I'd give it a couple of years. Let him develop his game. Let him grow. And then if the time comes where a big club comes, say big club, don't want to get in trouble, uh, a bigger club, <laughs> uh, you know, what, what, what wants to come in for him, then um, he'll be ready and primed to, to go in and, and do a job. Yeah, when we when we look at the definition of big clubs, it's basically Champions League, top six, max. Let's look at Liverpool, Glenn, if we could. Their season has basically reached a pretty, you know, almost a tipping point. You've got Villa, and then the second leg against Real Madrid. Let's look at the top four. Do you think they can make up the gap that exists at the moment? Yes, I do. There's only three points. I suspect they were quite heavily motivated against Villa, given what happened in the return game uh, earlier this season. It's only three points. They they picked up form a bit in recently as Fabinho's return to the midfield. That's been hugely influential. You know, the, the back four appears to have settled down a little bit in some respects. You, you once you get you know, a, a, a Salas begin to score again, and it, he does tend to score in, in in bursts of goals. You can suddenly see you can see them getting into the top four. But obviously, it depends on one of the top four slipping away slightly, but. They've been there and they've done that. And I guess if they did go out to Real, which looks like at the moment, but though by no means guaranteed, then you know, they, they can then concentrate in terms of fitness and fixtures on just uh, getting into the top four. So I would be surprised if they didn't make the top four. Having at one stage this season looked like they might not. Mm. It was really noticeable after that Madrid defeat, Rich. Jurgen Klopp, his his tension and his frustration was palpable, wasn't it? How do you think he's dealing with what really must feel like the most testing season of his career? Um, yeah, you're absolutely right there. It, he has gone through a lot this year. Obviously, a lot of the stuff's been been well documented. But I think Glenn made made a good point. You know, the fact that Liverpool are still there or thereabouts, I think he'll be quite pleased with. Really, as you say, only three points off the top four, still in the Champions League, and then they're starting to to pick up form again. So while, okay, they've gone through this, they've really suffered this year in terms of obviously injuries, of course, and loss of form and, and things like that. But the fact that they're still there with their abouts and still within, you know, there within the chance, it, it it still gives them something to fight for. And we know Klopp is a fighter. We know the players for long periods of time are showing fantastic consistency. And he'll just be saying, look, just give us this one final burst, please. And, you know, let's... Let's make this push for the top four because it's, it's crucial that they're in the, that they're in Europe next season and in the Champions League club of their size. So he'll just be looking for that now. Of course, he was frustrated, and after after the Madrid game, purely because you know he he, he made some interesting decisions. I was surprised that Cater started, and the fact that that didn't work out, and of course the defensive mistakes as well. You know you're, you're giving a game away, and at that level, you can't afford to make those kind of errors, and you need to be able to trust players and. You know, he hasn't got the players there that he trusts, the, the starting eleven, which you all know that, that Liverpool have. So, of course, it's frustrating that the players coming in aren't fulfilling that, but they're still in with a, with a shot to get top four. And I think they'll be pushing for, for that, you know, in the last stretch of the season. 
He's he's not a great loser, is he? But I mean, the best managers or the best players rarely are, and it's not as if it's a, it's not his first bad season. In that, I mean, the, the last season at Dortmund, I think he said he's going to quit halfway for the season anyway. But he, the frustration then a bit up because all their good players kept going to Bayern, and he couldn't stop that. And they, they finished seventh in the league, and they got went out of the Champions League early that year. Yeah, he say he he left after a great spell at Dortmund, a bit of a cloud. I can't see that happening at Liverpool because obviously they have got the power to stop players in most cases going to place to, to opposition and although they do lose players they tend to lose them to Barcelona or Real Madrid rather than to Manchester United or Manchester City obviously with the obvious exception of Sterling a few years ago so I think yeah it's a matter of getting the top floor maybe reassess one or two things strengthen in the summer obviously Van Dijk could come back and so on and then go again next year for him yeah Glenn what would you do or what's your attitude towards Trent Alexander-Arnold situation at the moment from from a personal perspective, I look at that and I think it's it's almost natural in a way that his career trajectory should level out. You know, I think he's hit a bit of a plateau at the moment, probably this season. But you point that out on Merseyside and, and you basically get, get a volley. Is it a free, you know, some people are saying the criticism or you know, the, the, the analysis of his performances is, is akin to a feeding frenzy. Is it that or is it justifiable to actually point out some failings which, you know, for the first half at least in Madrid were really obvious? I think it epitomises one or two things in that culture here. I mean, one, I mean, I was talking to a former manager about this uh, earlier this week and there is, we're not the only country like this. I mean, I think Spain, for example, maybe Australia, and certainly, and that's only in my awareness, but there is a sense a sense of extremes in terms of the way, the way you build people up and also the way you knock them down. I mean, so Southgate leads him out of the squad. Then he has a great game against Arsenal. Southgate's obviously an idiot. Then he has a bad game against Real Madrid. Southgate is obviously right. Yeah, it's all one extreme or another. I mean, there are no guarantees with young players. I mean, I think that when we when we were talking about the young players, the wave of players coming through earlier in the, in the program, yeah, I'm thinking about another wave of players. You know, remember John Flanagan? Mm, yeah, yeah, he no was yeah. he, he was the great fullback coming through at Liverpool, and he was brilliant. Eighteen year old kid playing in the first team, played for England. You know, he was on standby for the World Cup in uh, Brazil. He was compared to Cafu by Cafu, and now he's playing in Shawa. Yeah, he had a bad injury. He couldn't get back in the team. And his career, so there are no guarantees in football, particularly of injuries. And people do plateau. Now, I'm not going to suggest that Alexander-Arnold's form is going to fall off in the same way. I do think there is an argument that perhaps right back isn't his long-term position if you're going to play on the back four, you know, maybe on the right of a back five. Or maybe he is actually more of an attacking midfielder. Or even I saw someone suggesting this week he should be move across central midfield like Philip Lahm because of his passing. That's quite a big shift to go right in the middle from fullback. I mean, the women tried that with Lucy Bronze and she's a great player, but it didn't work. But you could see an argument for maybe playing him further forward. And I can see why Gareth hasn't picked him in the England squad. And the question is, again, if you're going to take him, who do you leave out? And I think the feeling is probably we're going to have to beat the top sides to win the competition. So when you play in those games, you need to be very sound defensively. It's not It's not really a matter of breaking down teams in the same way as making sure they don't break you down, in which case Trippier is probably the better bet in that particular circumstance. It is a little bit of a horses for courses circumstance. I mean, yeah, we're privileged to have so many good right-backs. It's quite unusual. Yeah, I remember watching Alexander-Arnold play in that more advanced wide midfield role for an England age group team which included Phil Foden funnily enough and it might be that he develops in that way I suppose what his situation does point out and and Glenn alluded to it Rich is this whole idea of instant judgment but also constant judgment you know from one game to the next do we all need and I'm talking about our profession as much as anything else do we all need a bit a sense of perspective here I think we do, yes. I mean, obviously, he's a young player and, you know, young players are, are going to kind of go up and down with consistency. But you made a good point at the outset in terms of when he is critiqued, you say, special Merseyside, and, you know, it's almost a case of, you know, how dare you critique him? And I think that's made it worse in a sense. If you look at how, especially social media now, and even, you know, even a lot of, well, a lot of writers, you know, in terms of the kind of tribalist aspect of it, because Liverpool made a big deal of him not being picked for the last squad, right? So there were moments of discontent. Even Klopp came out and said he didn't agree with the decision. So that adds added scrutiny to the facts already, which 
there's already a thing of everything's through the gaze of really be picked for the Euro squad. So that added to the fact that, you know, Liverpool are fuming. It's almost a case of, oh, how, how dare we not be not be picked? How dare we not be, be on the approach? Now it's almost a case of, especially fans on social media and stuff like that, okay, we're going to point out every single error that he makes. And it's not an anti-Liverpool thing. I wouldn't go that far. But that adds to the scrutiny, which probably wasn't there before. Of course, his, his game is going to be critiqued. He needs to improve defensively. And actually, Cole made a great point on, on Twitter yesterday, talking about his, his, his stride pattern and making sure that he's matching the stride pattern of, of his winger. But I don't think that level of criticism towards Gareth Southgate for not picking him from the Liverpool aspect, I don't think that helped because that added to the tension and to the kind of hysteria and frenzy that you mentioned. So I think we all know his quality. We all know what he can bring. We all know what he can do. But he needs to show that in the, in the, in the run-up to the Euros, can he fulfil those defensive capabilities? And at the moment, he's not shown that in the big games of a couple of errors against Real Madrid. But he also came up with some fantastic passes going forward as well. So... As Glenn said, is okay. You take him. Who do you leave out? Okay, Trippier, of of course, is probably the, the best bet. But you know, he, there are also question marks against him as well. You know, personally, I would take him because in in the games against the smaller sides where we dominate possession, he'll be fantastic on the ball. But in those big games, then you you play a, a more established, more a more established fullback. Yeah, well, I suppose if football is a game of snakes and ladders, you know. Trent is probably on a snake at the moment, and uh, Mason Mount is uh, hurtling up the ladder, isn't he, Glenn? Thomas Tuchel called him a, a key player after that, I thought, revealingly efficient win over Porto. How good can he be? Well, no one calls him a teacher's pet anymore, and I assume he's getting in just because he's a nice guy, um, <laughs> which, which is excellent, yeah. I think everyone now realises he's in the team, you know, the England team, the Chelsea team, on merit. I mean, Tuka left him out, I think, the first game, didn't he? But very quickly put him in. It's interesting. He's almost gone under the radar slightly because of the attention on Foden and one or two of the others, but he's become an absolute integral part of the side now. Uh, and, and, yeah, and, of course, he's, he scores goals, which is an incredibly useful thing to have for a midfielder. I suspect he probably um, benefited for a while from a bit of tutelage from Frank Lampard there, who was beyond par as a goal-scoring midfield in terms of the timing. And there is a sense when you see him in those positions that he is going to score. There's no sort of sense of will he score, won't he score. He's, he, he's devastating. Uh, again, he's another one who could go on to be, he could go on to be a, a terrific player. Uh, but as I say, you never quite know with young players. They do get worked out. Oppositions do look at how, you know, like they have with Alexander-Arnold. They, they do look at, OK, where's his weakness? What can we do to stop him and so on? So, I mean, yeah, the question is, yeah, the, the, the great players are the ones who can... In, Meet those challenges, develop. I mean, we see this more, I guess, in a sport like cricket, where it's so much more individual scrutiny in terms of the way, particularly batsmen, the way you play. But the great players are the ones who can overcome those challenges, find a way around it, and you know, maybe adjust their game slightly and find another dimension. So, yeah, be, as he goes on, but certainly he looks at the moment to have all the tools. Yeah, how do you, you know, how do you assess the you know the jigsaw puzzle or you know the offensive jigsaw puzzle at Chelsea, Rich? You've got Havertz. One goal in 27. It seems to me that Timo Werner is is still suffering from a, a crisis of confidence. You have you know, Pulisic injured yet again. Is he too injury prone? How do you see all that shaking down? Well, we we know that when when all of the players that you've mentioned are are, are fit and firing, you know, it it can be a scary proposition. I think the issue that that as you say, two two shells got is that. It's getting that consistency and, and, and getting players fit and, and, and firing. And, you know, even the player you didn't mention there, uh, you know, um, Ziyech, you know, that former Ajax winger, again, we know his quality, but for some reason or another, it's not really working out. I think when when when, when all the players are fit and, and firing, you know, to the best of their capabilities, I'd love to see Werner, obviously Pudisic out wide and, and Ziyech on the other side with, with Havertz in behind them. But at the end of the day... That they're not producing the goods at the moment. Again, is it a case of do they need to go out and, and buy someone? I don't think so. I just think they need maybe a, a pre-season un, un, under Tuchel, get themselves fit, get their confidence back, and um, we should see them firing next season. But again, they have to hit the ground running early next season because they were all bought for big money, weren't they? So you're expecting the goods straight away. Mm. How significant do you think it was that Chelsea did bounce back from that you know, frankly, awful performance against West Brom, Glenn. They've got Palace at the weekend. 
you know, I suppose similar, aren't they? Very obdurate, well-organised. Are they the type of team which can cause Chelsea a bit of a problem? And he did good on the counter. I think Chelsea beat the very comfortably earlier in the season, but it wasn't as convincing as the score I suggested. Um, I think Jigsaw was a good analogy for the Chelsea attack, Mike. Uh, you sort of get the feeling sometimes it's two separate jigsaws in the same box and you're trying to work out which bits fit and which bits actually <laughs> belong to another jigsaw. Because it does look like those attacking, you know, they're great attacking talents, but have they actually been bought with a plan that they would ever work together as a unit? I mean, quite a few of them appear to be played out of not in the positions in which they made their success. I mean, yeah, Werner being an obvious case. And I think there will have to be a reassessment in the summer of what, who he keeps and who they can shift at any kind of reasonable price unless they can get players to play differently. But Palace, Palace will be a good test. Um, they're getting close to that point when they'll head for the beach. Uh, <laughs> so it might be, you're getting to a stage where it might be a good time to play them. But again, they are quite difficult opposition and, again, and they've got very good counter-attacking ability. So they will you know, they will sit back, they will let Chelsea come on to them and then they will try and hit them on the break. And they're certainly capable of causing problems. Yeah. As an Everton fan at the weekend, I mean, Everton should have won the game comfortably and then end up only taking a point from it. Yeah, I think the game I'm also quite looking forward to is is you know West Ham at home to Leicester on Sunday. I think David Moyes, Rich has done a you know a, a remarkable job there this season. You know, almost manager of the year type material. This game is it a key indicator of their ability to sustain a run at the top four? Do you think? I think so, and 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 I think why that is is because West Ham have had a good record this season against everyone who's not a top six side. I think they've only lost to Newcastle, who, uh, who's a side not, not not in the kind of traditional top six or seven. So they've proven that they can do the job against those guys. But if they want to make the next step, they need to start getting results against those teams who are now in and around them. You know, that that's that's the level that they're at. And, you know, they've missed opportunities, of course, you know, going three up at home to Arsenal and drawing a game and, and even at Old Trafford. And I think United were there for the taking in terms of at least getting a point there. So... Leicester are kind of, you know, a team who you'd say maybe is of a similar standing. And, you know, they, they should back themselves to, to get a result. It would be a shame if they set up defensively because we know and we saw against Wolves, again, a team who underachieving, but again, of a similar stature, when, when, especially on the counter-attack, they look phenomenal. And um, they showed that against Leicester, they can definitely cause them problems. Did you know David Moyes has been manager of the year three times? Has he? Which is, which is one more time than Arsene Wenger. Two more times than Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp. The only person who's been manager manager of the year. Don't forget this is an award voted for by their peers, is Alex Ferguson. Wow. I must admit. So could be on for I'm, I'm yeah. on your I'm on your team in the pub quiz. Is that okay? <laughs> when we can get back in the pub anyway. Yeah, and I suppose I'm I'm interested also, you know, there's there's been a quiet efficiency about Brendan Rogers this season, hasn't there, Glenn? Yes, it has. He's won it once, funny enough. Yes, this is a game that looks, I mean, along with the Man City Leeds game, which I think would be terrific, this is a game that looks quite, it's an intriguing matchup, isn't it, between two of the surprise sides to an extent this year. And Leicester being, he's dealt very, very well with a lot of quite difficult injuries for a squad that isn't particularly big. It's quite interesting, like a lot of teams, their home and away form hasn't necessarily been what you would anticipate. So, like a lot of um, sides this year, you're not quite sure what you're going to get going into the game. Uh, but they filled the spaces and filled the gaps very, very well. And clearly, they would also have, you know, as well as qualifying for Europe, the FA Cup in their minds. I mean, uh, it's a it's a fantastic chance for a club for them to reach the final. And you know, obviously, they've never won it before. I think I think Rice will be a big miss, won't he? Um, obviously, he's out of the game. Especially, you know, you look at Leicester's midfield. You know, Tielemans and Indeedy are fantastic access there. I, I do worry with Rice missing. You know, if they lose that midfield battle, you know, the, the game will, will swing in Leicester's favour definitely. Mm. And Madison coming back, isn't he? So, what about yeah? You know, there were a couple of games which were quite evocative, just because of what happened earlier in the season. Manchester United against Spurs uh, as well this weekend. How relevant do you think, Rich, that you know results like the six-one are when you go into a return match? Of course, it'll be in the in the back of the players' mind. I think you know to be. He'll be all over the back pages, mate. <laughs> I mean, to be to be humble like that at home is. Uh... Obviously, it's quite something against your old manager, but it's just a lot has happened in that in that since then. And I think both teams are in different spaces now. I think you know at, at that stage of the season, Spurs were, were really firing. You know, Kane and Son were playing exceptionally together, and they were linking up really well. Of course, United were down to ten men that game. I guess important to say, but you look at United now; they just look more 
more, you know, more, more resolute, more reassured in their play. Whereas Tottenham, you, you don't know what you're going to get from them. One week, they, as you saw against Crystal Palace at home, you know, they can turn teams over quite convincingly. And then the next, they, they play like they did against Newcastle, which, which was abject, really. So I think because so much has happened in that time, of course, United will want to get one over on, on them. But I just feel both teams are in different spaces now. And with United being so assured in their play and obviously, you know, probably going to end up finishing second now, you know, you, you would back them to win that game. Yeah, I suppose one of the common denominators will be a certain Jose Mourinho. Can you compare and contrast his impact at United and uh, the similar cycle that appears to be happening at Spurs? It seems to be happening fast forward at Spurs, doesn't it? But without the trophy that, of course, he did win at United, won a couple. I mean, they might yet win the League Cup, which would be quite interesting. They're clearly, Manchester City are quite a tough opposition to be playing against. It does appear to be the usual scenario and as usual he's falling out of everybody be interesting to see what it's like if the fans were there I mean uh, clearly the that all or nothing was was carefully edited and Jose was the star of the show but you know, the, the fans generally at the time were like well we didn't really want him but we're accepting of him and then he's winning you know so okay we take that and funny enough, they are scoring quite a lot of goals. I know yeah, the, the football hasn't always been what you would like if you're a Spurs fan, not quite in the traditions of the club, but they have scored a lot of goals, mainly due to Kane's brilliance. I mean, I think he's leading the goal scoring and the assists chart, which is incredible. Um, but there is a sense that, as uh, the guy on the other side of um, North London used to say, they're playing with the handbrake on a lot of the time. And you do feel that... Uh, it isn't the right balance, this manager and this set of players, for what Spurs could play like were they had someone who's prepared to let them play a bit more. And you, again, you, you ask, yeah, this question will come up all season. How long can Kane wait? Because mm. he's obviously he want to win something to go with his, with his excellence. Yeah, how long can you wait? Is Mourinho going to be the answer? And if not, then who? So it's, it's, it's a difficult one. But it does seem like it's the same as it has been in the last few clubs with him, just slightly quicker. Yeah. Can we look across North London, Rich, Arsenal? You've got Arteta suggesting that, that Tierney's irreplaceable, but he's going to lose him for yet another injury, a knee injury. What do you make of Arsenal at the moment? I think very, very hit and miss. You, you just don't know what, what Arsenal are, are going to turn up. And I think, you know, the kind of West Ham game that, that I mentioned earlier is big case in point. First 45 minutes... They, they they were dreadful, but then the second forty five minutes they 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 were brilliant, and you know they 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 pressed well, they pressed high, played of intensity, and you know they they have got talented players there. They just need they need to show it on a more consistent basis. Tenth place is not good enough, and you know a couple of my colleagues did a a, a piece on on Arsenal's underlying stats to see you know are they really a mid table team and and do the numbers back it up and. And 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 they and they do in terms of going to expected goals and assists. It's very much in line with, with a mid-table team. So, in 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 that respect, you're saying that you know that they they are achieving. They are they are where they should be. But we know a club of Arsenal size and the players they have on paper, they should be doing much better. Yeah, talking of needing to do better, it's another extended Premier League weekend. Glenn, Fulham play Wolves on Friday night. They need to start winning. It's not enough to be impressive, is it? They do, don't they? I mean, the way they fell apart in the last game and when they conceded against Villa was would have been worrying for Parker because they they have played quite well for the last few months and they were picking up points and they looked like they will pick up points in that game. So they very much do do need to start winning. You're getting to a stage where the games are running out and if, if Newcastle pick up, they're eking their way to safety desperately, slowly and painfully. But if they get a point and Fulham don't, it's another point to be caught. And it's, you know, when you're looking at the table and you're thinking, well, they're three points behind, they've got games in your hand, et cetera, et cetera. At the bottom, winning can make a huge difference because people don't pick up their points very often, but you can't look at games in hand and think, well, you're going to win those games because most of the time you're not. And they do need to pick up points. And, and Wolves, are get you. <laughs> it's a bit of a theme, isn't it? You never quite know what you're going to get with Wolves at the moment. Like you do with most clubs in this division, I think it's the, the rush of matches, the difficulty of performing consistently every few days when you're playing week in, week out, even at this level, plus clearly injuries. And there's going to be a lot of players out there who we're not aware of, who are carrying injuries, going to the games, not fully fit. So I think there's a lot of issues. Again, for all the foreign players, the, the psychological aspect of being locked down and away from your families for so long is probably a factor we're not taking into full consideration. 
So yeah, they need they need to start winning, but they know that. Probably so do Newcastle, to be honest, just to make sure. Burnley also, they probably need one win to guarantee survival, although we expect them all to stay up. At Newcastle's expense on Sunday, Rich? Yeah, I, I think so. I think Burnley have been plugging away this season. I just think the likes of Chris Wood's coming into decent form at the moment. He scored quite a few goals recently. And again, tail of two halves last week. They were fantastic for the first let's say half an hour against Southampton and then and then let the lead slip and obviously lost the game. But I think they'd have just too much quality for Newcastle. And of course, we, we all know how, how Burnley play, very strong, very direct. I just think they'll just have that bit more quality in the, in the final third, as you say, with likes of Chris Wood and, and Dwight McNeil will, will cause Newcastle all, all types of problems with, with that back line. So I, I expect Burnley to win that game quite convincingly. Just want to also dwell, you know, Glenn, on area of expertise. The England women's team, they do seem to be in a bit of a limbo at the moment. They're meant to be playing in France on Friday evening. They've got Canada at home next Tuesday. Temporary manager. It's all a bit, you know, behind a... It's all in in the mists at the moment, isn't it? I'm not sure, actually. I feel after a period where there was a long sense of drift with with the long goodbye from Phil Neville, I think the players were slightly let down by the way went in the end. And the FA were did sort of facilitate over appointing as Olympic manager, so you could argue he had every right to go when he did. They hadn't played for like a year, but partly due, you know, well, down to COVID primarily. And the fact because we're hosting the next tournament, they had no competitive qualifying games, it sort of took precedence. So game after game was called off or not arranged. So we have had a lot of drift for about a year. But Reese has been uh, uh, Risa has, has been good. She's very quickly got a, turned the mood around a little bit from what I gather from the talk to the players. She's very efficient, you know, knows exactly what she wants in training sessions, very well organised. It's quite difficult at the moment because obviously, you know, due to the COVID restrictions, she can't have proper team meetings. She's, you know, the players in their rooms a lot of the time at St George's Park. They desperately need these two games. There was one game, basically a glorified training exercise against Northern Ireland, which was played at St George's Park on the training ground. But these are two proper games against decent opposition. The France game is problematic in that France is currently under lockdown, under curfew, and it, it, we still it looks like the game's going ahead. But given the fact that Lyon, France's main team, have got fifteen players on staff with COVID, it's clearly going to be a slightly weakened France team, and you just hope that they can get in and get out without getting the contagion. In normal circumstances, you might have called it off, but given the fact they haven't played away since last March, more than a year, they do need this game. They do need the other game. Risa will obviously take the team to the Olympics as Team GB, which will be heavily England-dominated. There is a slight advantage in the fact being Norwegian, she's not got the same connotations of bias that she might have if she was you know, English, Scottish, Welsh, Northern Irish, etc. Though clearly she's identified with the England team because she's coaching the Lionesses. But the team will be heavily built around the Lionesses, plus one or two other players like Caroline Weir, for example, from Manchester City. So I, I do feel they're getting back on track after a long period of drift. And the FA, I think, have got it right in recent appointment. And obviously we've got Serena Vogelman coming in after the Euro. So there's a sense of... Um, you know, picking up pace and moving in the right direction now. So after the Olympics, but yeah, and then they're looking towards the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. There's just so much, you know, inevitable confusion around and and uncertainty, isn't there, Rich? You know, if you look at the Euros, I don't know how you see that panning out in terms of, you know, there's a third wave of of COVID in Germany. Looks like Bilbao and Dublin won't be able to guarantee any crowds, so therefore they they might have to give up their games, although Glasgow should be okay. Do you think we're likely to see a more England-based tournament now? I think so. It's a, it's a logistical nightmare, isn't it? Because, as you say, we can't predict what's going to happen in the next couple of months. You mentioned the third wave, you know, in, in various places across Europe. And I think that, you know, that's, that's what a lot of these uh, FAs are saying. You know, we we would love to, but we just can't guarantee supporters safety and of course UEFA want to have fans in, in, in the stadium for, 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 for these games for, for various reasons so with more countries you know showing uncertainty and with the fact you look at England and, and our kind of vaccination rates seem to be going quite well at the moment it, it would make sense I think you know we've got the infrastructure here already to do it it's been well documented that it could potentially work obviously you saw that a few logistical issues in terms of obviously get where, when games are played and policing and things like that but 
there's no reason why more English data could, couldn't couldn't stand in and, and get more games on with fans in there. You know, we're already doing, you know, we've got trial events coming up very soon. We're welcoming fans back to stadiums at the back end of the season. So hopefully if all goes well and the vaccination process continues as it is, can't see why can't bring more games to England. Yeah. I'd just like to end, if I may, and bring all this together. It's by looking to, you know, what is a really sadly, depressingly recurring debate that we've had on the pod. You know, the racist abuse now is constant. It, it, it appears after every major game. Uh, you've got Rangers midfield player Glenn Kamara talking about being targeted every day on social media after last month's incident involving Andre Cudela, who's conveniently ill or injured at the moment. There's nothing being done beyond this ritual outrage and empty promises and the occasional police investigation, like the one in the West Midlands involving uh, West Brom's Callum Robinson. We've had the Valencia situation this week with the accusations against Cadiz's Wankala. Villian has been speaking of being afraid to go online. Glenn, start with you, if I could. Is there a danger that this is just being normalised now? I think it has. I mean, part of the problem is you can't strip football out as much as football would like to pretend it's different from everything else. You can't strip football out of society. And clearly we've seen a move towards more prevalent racism in society generally around the world, whether that's people who basically kept their mouth shut now feeling emboldened and, and certainly like copycat behaviour. Is hard, is hard to tell, but f- football obviously re- reflects society and so, so society has, has gone that way in recent years. Quite how you deal with a specific social media issue is complicated. I mean, the obvious one would be make everyone pass an identity, but that does have one or two issues in, in some countries. Plus, even in countries like here, there are some you know, some some whistleblowers and I think of people like the Secret Barrister or NH- NHS personnel during the pandemic who, you know, are making a perform a valuable service publicly, but clearly do not want to be identified. So it is an extremely complex situation. It would appear that I don't think the social media companies are doing anywhere near as much as they could be doing and some, some more government muscle ought to be applied and some more police resources ought to be applied. It's, it's very hard to see what players can do individually beyond just not going on social media, which is basically giving in. And I can understand why players feel they shouldn't have to do that. And they're quite right. I mean, but I think all of us on social media are probably self-censorship, self-censoring these days and what we tweet ourselves as journalists because you don't want the pile on and sometimes it's just easier not to bother. So it, we are, you know, <laughs> we came around in circles a bit, but it is complicated, but more should be done, as we say. What about the players, Richard? You know, you've got your finger on the pulse do they are are we reaching now the point where they are looking at the feasibility if nothing else of really you know quite radical action here not turning up i think it's something that's that's definitely been spoken about and i think there's certain things which have happened behind the scenes where players have tried to form collectives and and, and try to make things happen on a collective basis I think what the issue is, and I think what the Valencia situation showed over the weekend is that there's no trust within the authorities to really back them up. We saw the players walking off and showing great solidarity over the weekend, but then there's contrasting reports. Were they forced to go back on? And if so, you know, that's that's not great. And fearful of, of the punishment from the authorities for not fulfilling the fixtures. But I think that kind of radical action needs to happen now because, as you rightly said at the start, you're going around in circles here now. It's the same process every time. Player has a bad game or even a good game. Goes on social media, gets racially abused. He will screenshot the tweet or the abuse that comes of it. Club will put out a statement, potential police action, and then it's the same again. So, you know, we all know what the definition of insanity is. And that seems we're getting to that point. So we need to do something to, to kind of take things forward and have that knee-jerk reaction. And if it means that players don't take to the pitch and, and take a financial hit, then then so be it. I understand, obviously, you know, clubs might, might put players under pressure because, especially in, in, in this kind of pandemic times and, you know, clubs, you know, not having as much income anyway, that they're under financial pressure as it is. But something needs to be done. And the authorities need to, the players need to have faith in the authorities that if they do take action like that, that they'll be backed up. 
but at the moment there's not so it's just easier just to say well we'll, we'll play we'll, we'll take it and we'll, 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 we'll you know we'll move on and it's a big shame on social media you talk about William being afraid to go online you know players enjoy interacting with fans and you know show, showcasing their life and you know things behind the scenes and stuff like that but more and more just beginning to say well what what's the point why why should i why should i do that because you have the odd one or two more growing now who, who, who are spoiling that experience for them it'd be a real shame if more players started going off social media because it's you know they, they were great to see the content and engage with them but if they're not safe in there why why should they put themselves through that you know they're under enough pressure playing the game week in week out as it is let alone having these additional issues as well if I can just come and just say on the situation in terms of Valencia and Rangers, I see no reason whatsoever why that shouldn't be severely dealt with by the you know UEFA, the Spanish FA, and so on. I mean, I know there are, are obviously legal issues in some cases, but players do not make that kind of accusation just because they're annoyed or wound up. It, it brings up so much aggro and so much focus. You know, it's not an accusation you will make lightly, and it's quite clear from the players' reaction that it happened. And no circumstances, you know, the. the Offending players should be absolutely hammered. Yeah. Well, you know, I agree with you, Rich, especially that I think it's just intolerable and something has to happen. Because, look, this is an existential issue for the game as we know it. Players, managers, coaches, referees, and, and yes, journalists have the right to be protected from persistent abuse. The insults are designed to dehumanise. Now, I'd like to see players stage a one-day strike, force their clubs and the sponsors to shun social media companies. Will it happen? Probably not. Should it? Why not? What do you think? Please let me know. And in the meantime, thanks to Glenn and Richard for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 